Welcome, welcome, guys. We are back for another episode of The Lock-In. I am joined, as usual, by my compatriot and fellow Unibet ambassador, Dara O'Kearney. Dara, welcome. Delighted to be here on this wonderful sunny day. How is it going, Dara? How is it in sunny Ireland for the three days a year we get some sun? Yeah, I mean, this is the perfect time of the year. I'm not. I'm usually not here because I'm usually in Vegas at this time of the year, so I've kind of forgotten how nice uh, Irish summers are. But yeah, it's, it's the perfect temperature where it's nice and warm, but it's not so warm that you're unpleasantly sticky so yeah definitely enjoying the Irish summer yeah unpleasantly sticky is definitely how I would describe how I feel right now I feel like the guy out of Raiders of the Lost Ark whenever I'm out eating at the moment just face meltingly warm here in Malta Uh, we are joined this week by a former guest of the chip race he is in many ways an unsung hero in poker a musician a video editor and the man behind the Doug Polk poker channel he is the former head of multimedia for Bluff and the current creative director for Poker King Media he is seriously serious he is Thomas Keeling Thomas welcome thank you for having me we are delighted to have you, Thomas. Uh, I know you are just back from Cabo San Lucas, where you produced the coverage for the excellent WPT Heads Up. I am dying to talk to you about that. But before, I'm afraid I'm going to have to start with some sad news, actually, from uh, the world of poker and the world of Irish poker, specifically. Noel Furlong passed away, the 1999 WSOP main event champion, he passed away on Sunday uh, at the age of 83. Noel was also the 1987 and 1989 Irish Poker Open champion uh, back in the early years of that event. Not a bad resume for a man who you could rightly describe as a full-time businessman. Dara, I know you played against Noel a few times. What are your memories of him? Yeah, I think I only I think I probably only played against Noel once. I think it was the 2011 Irish Open, which was the big Irish Open where they got people like Negreanu and Helmut to come over. So they made, Paddy Power made a big deal of it that year. And I do have a memory of playing, moving to a table late on day one with Noel on it. Um, he was obviously quite elderly by the, by this stage. I, I guess he was in his early 70s, um, but he was a bit of a legend as still the only Irish player to have won the WSP main event, um, two-time Irish Open champion. People kind of knew that he wasn't really a professional poker player. Um, he was he was independently wealthy. I believe he's, he was worth... a, a approximately 100 million from his business. He was also a very successful horse trainer. So he was basically just a businessman who played for fun, but he had developed a very particular style, which was actually brutally effective back in the day. Um, He made it just all about preflop. He just picked spots where he had a sort of a semi-decent hand and just moved all in preflop. And this was back in the day when people didn't really like calling off no matter how strong their hand was preflop. Uh, they all believed that they had all these incredible post-flop edges. So it was brutally effective and it, it did propel him to two Irish Opens and the WSOP main event. Well, tributes have come in from far and wide. Jesse May told a great story on Twitter all about Noel's hero call against Hookseed on that WSOP final table. It certainly showed how fearlessly he played. Uh, that was, of course, the same year that Irishman Porrick Parkinson and George McKeever also made the final table. That win wasn't Noel's only WSOP main event final table. In fact, in 1989, the year Phil Helmet won, Noel came sixth, famously bluffing Phil off top pair and the second no flush draw. Who knows how he managed to get him to do that. Dara, based on what you're saying about his loose, gambling style, it probably is the case, and you alluded to this, that in a time where pros fancied their post-flap edges and maybe some soft money that they could have got down the streets against weaker opponents, he stole loads of equity back, bulldozing them pre-flop. I believe he had one very famous uh, nemesis. 
Yeah, every time I think of Noel, there was there was one particular thing which which uh, always springs to mind, and I'm sure you can relate to this, David. Er- early in your career, I'm pretty sure probably somebody at the table tilted you. You know, they got the better <laughs> of you playing in a style that you thought wasn't wasn't good. And I'm guessing that similar to me, you probably went home and wrote a blog about it. Um, <laughs> Maybe mention them by name. Maybe actually getting their name wrong just to just to add salt to the wounds. But uh, certainly that's something I've been guilty of. But I was always amused when I read Super System, which was one of the first books I read, to see that he apparently had this effect on Doyle Brunson, because right at the end of Doyle's section on tournament play and the uh, section on tournament play, which is good of its time and sort of goes early stages around the money bubble all the way to the final table. But after final table, when you would think, well, there's nothing to be said after the final table, he had a section which he he called wild card. And I'm going to read the start of that now. Um, There is one more thing you may need to consider. The ever increasing number of weaker players entering tournaments has added a new element in poker. I call it two card hold'em. These weaker players know that they can't compete with better players and that they will get outplayed in the latter stages of the hand. So they simply wait for two high cards or a wired pair and bet all their chips before the flop. I've seen this type of player go deep into the second and third day of tournaments by doing this. In fact, I think Neil Furlong, not the name, a winner of the WSOP champion, mostly used this strategy. So I'm pretty sure that Noel must have tilted uh, uh, Doyle along the way to the point that, that Doyle decided to put him on blast in the book. Fantastic stuff. Well, as I said, tributes have poured in and, and we'll add ours to us, uh, a legend and, uh, you know, our condolences to his family. To the big story from last week, poker legend Phil Ivey wins the WPT Poker King Heads Up event. Thomas, we're into your wheelhouse now. You had a front row seat for this one. The tournament was a sort of hybrid players playing on devices, but also for the most part, live across the table from each other. Some of them were satellited in. People talk about Ivy's presence, his intimidating stare, his ability to make soul reads. Were there moments where you could see, even though he was somewhat mediated, him still able to do that? Arguably. You know, uh, most of the players that Phil had to play against in that tournament were very tough players. You know, there were softer sections of the bracket. There were tougher parts of the bracket. Phil didn't really have any easy matches. So I think most of his opponents were probably like, you know, experienced players who play for high stakes and high pressure situations. So I, I would not imagine that somebody like Manic Loser um, felt intimidated by Phil or could feel his aura or anything like that. But speaking of wild cards, uh, Phil was definitely doing a lot of like out of the book things that seemed to have thrown people off and it worked out for him. Yeah, it certainly did. Uh, Dara, we were talking about this during the event itself. Obviously, it took place over several days, but it it really feels like Poker King and WPT have found something that really works here. I wrote a couple of articles about the event, and I pointed to the quality of the commentary. Uh, You had Jamie Kerstetter and Joey Ingram bringing colour, but you also had Olivier Bousquet and Lucky Chewy and Nick Shulman and Doug Polk doing really good hand analysis. What stood out for you, Dara? Um, I think the format was a winner. It was a, it was quick enough that, um, that 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 it was engaging, but it was not. It wasn't just like one of the old-fashioned total and utter crapshoots. Um, I also think the just the general coverage was really good. Um, top-class commentators. Um, you didn't manage to get into the box, so that kind of illustrates <laughs> that that they only hired the best. Um, no need for it. No but, need for it but yeah, I, I, even the fact that guys like Olivia came straight from their match and, and jumped into commentary, I thought I thought that sort of added 
there was also good social media presence. You had you had a sense that they were all having good fun down there as well, which is something that is it is important, I think, to convey that to the outside world. Poker should look like fun, um, and this this looked like a really fun event. Um, and yeah, I think I think I think it was a massive positive. I think it is a winning format. Was it as fun behind the scenes as it looked, Thomas? Not for me. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of work. Uh, but where's, yeah. where's your tan, Thomas? Why don't? Why aren't you all like sunburned and tanned? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, a lot of people really got baked out there, like Joey and Olivier. But the feedback that I got from people that participated, worked the event, played in it, was, was overwhelmingly positive. You know, David, people often when they bust a tournament. They want to just get out. They're on the next flight out. doesn't matter where they are. I I see it all the time, especially in even in exotic locales, like uh, for PCA and and tournaments like that. Not a single person did that on this stop. I was actually pretty blown away by, um, you know, how much people enjoyed the trip. And I don't think it was just because it was at like a nice resort, you know, in a, in a city like Cabo. I, I think the group of players was a big part of it too. Everybody that we invited were just very like cool, personable, fun to hang out with people and it it worked out well yeah i said that in one of my articles as well i thought that um it was a real showcase for how the modern player if you like now i know these guys are probably somewhere in the middle school they're not old school they're not brand new either but that, that demographic who probably fall around my age um how many personalities and characters there are in the game and how for a long time there used to be that narrative of the, you know, the robots and the wizards and whatever. That was a really false narrative, I always thought. And, and I think these guys showcased how much personality exists in that demographic. I would agree with that. Um, th- there is something to be said for the guy who shows up to like your local casino and he's wearing the hoodie and the sunglasses and he's not talking and he just listens to his music or watches Netflix for six hours. But I think it's really an unfair generalization that just hit a whole generation of players. And I think a lot of these guys did not really get enough of an opportunity to showcase their personalities. Um, and, and I think largely uh, the poker world has kind of slept on a lot of these players. Guys like Nick Petrangelo. Now, in this particular event, he busted the first round. But this guy, he's he's really fun. Like, he, he's an amazing guy to talk to. He When he teaches poker for, for upswing and things like that, he, he's very good at conveying complex topics in a way that's digestible to the average person. And he's really funny. And and just examples of that don't get shown enough. And I think one of the things we'd like to work on is bringing up some people that, you know, deserve some spotlight rather than the same old faces that we've seen for 20 years. Not that there's anything, some of those characters are still great too, but you know, I feel like we've kind of gotten stuck on them. I think that's a great point. The one thing, and I I did want to push back because I thought it might be a little fun to ask you this question. The one format that it reminded me of, I obviously said it was quite a unique hybrid sort of thing, but the one thing it was a little bit like was the GPL, a format that famously flopped and one that you definitely spent a little bit of time making videos poking fun at. So what were the differences? Okay, well, listen, like when when planning this stuff out, we definitely, you know, saw some similarities there too. But we wanted to look at things that made that a failure and, you know, thought about how do we not replicate that? So uh, a big part of why I think it was uninteresting was because there were there weren't really any stakes where there, there might have been a prize at the end of it. But like the team format, a lot of these exhibitions were just like play money matches. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. The cube was interesting, but kind of a silly idea. Um, so, Yeah. Team names were a bit gimmicky. I, I, listen, I could see some potential in the idea. Maybe it was just executed poorly. 
So, so no squash court and actual prize money. There's a, that's that's the lesson we take away. <laughs> uh, it, it's a big. I mean, I know it sounds obvious, but yes, <laughs> having having a big cash prize at stake is, is very important. People people would not watch this event if if it was like a, a twenty five dollar buy in, no matter who's playing it. So true. I so do true. I, I do remember a wonderful Doug Polk video poking fun of the GPO where he. he it, it, it was done in the form of a breakdown, but every bet size was zero dollars because there was nothing being played for. Because it all rounds to zero, as Doug would say. Yes. <laughs> Crazy. Well, from one Thomas Keeling production to another, the Ivy and Duane interviews possibly going to be part of a series of even more interviews. I don't know. Uh, this is being put on by Poker King at the moment. Both of these guys are ambassadors for Poker King. Both are obviously huge names in the game who are actually fairly underexposed uh the ivy interview is out already and the duan one i know will drop any day it may even drop before this does firstly thomas you have pulled joey ingram back into the podcast content arena for these why was he the right man for the job in your opinion well there's a few things uh about that we, we previously did do some interviews with ivy and duan uh they were also very successful on youtube uh one was a series of conversations between Phil Ivey and Barry Greenstein. And then uh, there was another kind of a ask me anything kind of a session where fans submitted questions for Tom Dwan. And then uh, Nick Shulman sat down and sort of fired these questions at him. And he kind of explored and branched off into other conversational topics too. But that was a format that I found to be very successful. And I knew that it probably would be better than just like firing questions from behind a camera or with like a buttoned up interviewer type of person because that's what I did for a couple of years when I worked at Bluff. I was the guy who would, I interviewed Phil Ivey before and I had like my list of questions and I just went one by one. And it's not the most effective way to go about, you know, guys don't feel comfortable like that. I know that more conversational uh, aesthetics tend to just kind of come off more real. So it's the reason that Joey, I guess I asked him to do this kind of just happened on its own, like I'd already invited Joey to come out to Cabo, do some content with us, maybe do some commentary. I, I knew he was gonna be all over Instagram stories and, and stuff like that, just, you know, showing off like, here I am, this is what a cool event. And so while I was already shooting some promotional stuff for like some ads for the upcoming event, I figured might as well bring Joey in there and do a pod. Um, so yeah, it, it just kind of happened serendipitously and, and I think the result was quite good. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, Dara, Joey has had an on-again, off-again love affair, you might say, with content creation over the past few years. He seems to work in fits and starts, seems really passionate, enthusiastic for a burst of work, and then sort of quickly gets burnt out. I sometimes think that that has inadvertently created a pent-up appetite for his work, even more so than people have an appetite for it anyway. Uh, and then that creates higher and higher expectations for Joey, which in turn perhaps stress him out a little bit. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. Um, I think the world has moved towards a model now where it seems a positive to have constant um, and consistent output. Um, you know, you see the top Twitchers are the people who put in the biggest hours. You see the, the you, top YouTube channels are the ones that have the most frequent content. The algorithms actually favor people who do that. Joey is sort of more old fashioned in the sense he's almost like the rock star who, you know, puts, puts out an album 
tours it for a while and then disappears off for 18 months and comes back um, <laughs> uh, ha- having allowed demand to build up in the way that you, you said. But but you're right. I mean, I think that does place large expectations then when you do come back. Whereas when you have the the, the, the more current model, let's say, your you, you fans just kind of, they're they're more forgiving. They're they're looking for sort of consistency of output um, rather than every every podcast uh, knocking it out of the park. I would say Joey's fans do get a bit frustrated when there's droughts of content. You know, you can see on the two plus two threads, people complain a lot. And but however, they're always pleased with the result when it's worth it. When when he comes back and does like a big thing like the Ivy interview. So, you know, I understand that. Yes, there are like algorithmic concerns and, and probably even social media favors people who are getting in the mix and, and updating things frequently. But there is something to be said for quality over quantity. And sure, you if you upload to YouTube four times a week, you might get more impressions served. But at some point, your click through rates are going to suffer. Your your um, your viewer retention will suffer. And you know, there, there are people who grind YouTube for a couple of years and then the results start getting steadily worse because they took that like cynical approach to making content. That's a great point. So the Duane interview hasn't dropped yet, or at least from our perspective before this has maybe gone out, it hasn't dropped yet. Uh, he's been a relative enigma for, I want to say, almost a decade now. People thought he was locked in a cage and in debt of tens of millions to the triad gangs at one point. Uh, what can we expect from this interview? So part of the reason, by the way, the reason it's delayed is, is simply because with Phil and with Tom and with a few other people, we've assured them that nothing's ever going to get published without them seeing it first. Cause pe- guys get burned sometimes, you know, sometimes when people do these kinds of interviews, they try to get like the most salacious, like the, the best, headline you can get out of them if there's shots fired or drama or something crazy that they said that it's going to make people you know flock to see it then they'll exploit it and then you know next time somebody when that happens to somebody next time they give an interview they might be more you know close to the best and won't want to go into details about certain things so in order to avoid that i just like to tell people hey just say whatever's on your mind if you say anything stupid we'll cut it you know, if you slip up and mention something that you weren't supposed to talk about, we can cut it. We'll show it to you first before anything goes out there. And when you do that, people like unwind a lot and really do speak their minds. And then sometimes they'll even, you know, even things that make it in are, are just going to be way better. So that's that's the thing with that. Like we, we ran uh, Phil's interview by him before we put it out there. And it's the same thing with Tom. Tom has uh, just not like finished. I think he's watched like half of it. So um, also, actually, bit of a challenge. He he may have he may have he may have finished it. Actually, I, I think there was like a, a couple of stories that he told. And he wasn't sure. Uh, you know, you, you have to like ask the people that they're about. Like, can you know, is this okay to say? You yeah, know, we've been in that spot. Wanna... A couple, we've been in that spot a couple of times over the years as well, where somebody would tell usually a high stake story, usually something involving a large sum of money in a private cash game or something like that. And it's a great story, and they tell it like full throatedly, and then they go, "Oh no, fuck, maybe I." 
<laughs> Maybe I can't say that. Maybe that guy's going to be real pissed off at me now. And we have actually had to cut a couple of great stories out down the years. Darry, you probably remember a couple of those. I do indeed, yeah. I do indeed. I, I, I remember a few cuts. We also had to had to cut a guy's mission of how much makeup he had been in at in, in one point. <laughs> he made us bleep. These, these are the kind of things people get sensitive about. Yeah, when, when I worked at Bluff, there was this crazy incident where somebody made counterfeit chips and he introduced them into a tournament. You guys remember this? I think this is at Borgata. Um, do and, and, yeah, yeah. And then and then I think like his room got raided by police and he tried to flush the fake chips down the toilet <laughs> and he went to prison over it. Uh, I yes, I did an interview with somebody who was like one of his victims basically, and he was like really upset and he had all this stuff to say about it. And as soon as I finished recording. He found me down the hallway and he chased me down. He said, hey, hey, probably shouldn't have said some of those things that I said. Because this guy's trying to get paid, you know, like maybe yeah. he doesn't want to upset. There's an investigation. So that was like a real bombshell of an interview that I sadly had to put back on the shelf. It happens sometimes. Yeah, it does happen. We we, we, we feel it from your side of it, too. Uh, it's happened a, a couple of times. Well, speaking of high profile interviews, uh, what a great segue, by the way. That was just seamless. Do you like that segue, Dara? I've just I've just I'm moving into the helmet thing there. That was I thought that was really well done. That was yeah, one of my best yeah, ones. I think you pay far more attention to segues than anybody else in the, <laughs> the world does. So, yeah, I'll, get, I'll give you props for your segues. We turn now to the exclusive Phil Helmut interview from our great friend Paul Seaton over at Gamble Online. Paul seems to be the Helmut whisperer. He always seems to get Phil for a chat at the most prescient moments. Uh, this time, of course, right on the heels of his third victory over Daniel Negreanu. We pre- we pre- excuse me, we previewed that match on our last show. I'm already laughing remembering it. Sorry, we previewed that on our last show with Tonka. We all predicted a Helmut victory. I will admit smugly that I've now won money all three times on Helmut. Uh, it is hilarious just how he cannot seem to be beaten these days. No one can figure it out. Uh, Paul asked Phil how it felt to beat Negranu again. And his quote was, in my 20s, it might have been about ego. In my 30s, I might have been blasé. But in my 50s, you learn as you get older, it's about the journey. It's very philosophical. Plus, it's not a WSOP bracelet, which I would feel better about. I went into this match feeling pretty normal and I've come out of it feeling pretty normal. Dara, Phil has talked about his sort of almost panic attacks uh, and, and, and how he had one of those ahead of playing Esfandiari in the big 200K match, the last one he played against uh, Antonio. He seemingly has no repeat of this. Uh, what do you make of Phil's more stoical disposition here as he describes it in the article? And You've gotten older over the years too, Dara. Have the wins under your belt begun to feel different? Yeah, I think you can describe it as... I mean, to be honest, I was pretty stoical in my youth. I'm not sure that there's been that much of a, a shift. And I've, I've recently been reading two books written by my aunts. And one thing that's becoming abundantly clear is stoicism clearly runs in the family. Um, pretty much every character they describe in my family had appeared to have that um, approach to life. But in terms of Phil, I mean, you know, it's it's how Phil feels today. Tomorrow he'll be blowing up because somebody said something <laughs> on Twitter uh, disrespecting him, and he won't be he won't be as focused on the journey. The, the the start of that quote was definitely the kind of thing you could put a fountain behind and uh, put it on Instagram and would get get lots of likes. But I mean, he's obviously won three 0 So yeah, obviously he feels good about it. Um, he's shown he he feels that he's uh, 
thumbed up his nose at his detractors, which he continues to have many of. I believe he was actually the underdog in all three legs on the um, betting market, which is quite remarkable given just the, you know, it's, you would kind of think after maybe the second one, people that would, would think, well, maybe actually Negreanu doesn't have an edge after all. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think the main thing out of it is just, it's just so funny. It's just hilarious what's happening to see Negreanu, who supposedly, um, you know, put in all that study to to, um, to lose to Poke, but at least now understood GTO, was taking on the ultimate um, exponent of the old school and uh, and got walloped three nil. Yeah, that's pretty um, pretty funny. No matter how you cut it, you know, it, it, it's one thing to talk about uh, Helmut's winning streak, but I feel that that buries the lead, and that is Negreanu's epic epic losing streak. When's the last time he won a heads up match? Because from what I understand, it goes all the way back to the one drop that he finished second place in. Like even before. The, it, When's the last time? It's been a long one, right? Uh, we we did we definitely haven't buried that lead on this show. Uh, that will that will be twenty thirty. <laughs> I think somebody needs to do the math and let's count the the total sum of money. Fourteen in a row. Fourteen. I think uh, I think Mike Haxton did the did, did the math on a previous thing and it was eight thousand to one, I believe. Okay, but let's count the money though. Okay, so the difference between first place and second. On all of these, and let's total it, it's got to be in, God, how many million? It might be in the eight figures. It's got to be at least 10 million, right? Yeah, probably, it probably <laughs> is. It probably is. Uh, Thomas, sparing a thought. This was going to be my next question there. So you, you've completely ruined the tone of this one. Sparing the thought <laughs> for the vanquished Negrani here. <laughs> a lot of bluster and frankly, a lot of putting down helmets for months. Dineggs, similar to when Polk put him to bed, uh, kind of cut a very magnanimous figure after the defeat, very kind of hangdog. Uh, one of Daniel's great skills is narrating the present in a way that's very favourable for himself. Do you think that after the Doug match, and then of course he thought he would have a walk in the park against Phil relatively, do you think he's now finding it hard to spin a positive? No, I, I think that's probably the correct way to go about it. Um there was a mixed martial artist named uh, Ronda Rousey who used to be infamous for being very boisterous and, you know, had a lot of ego and stuff. And then as soon as she lost her first fight, I think she just disappeared for a couple of years and kind of buried her head. And, you know, that's not the way you want to go about things. You want to kind of, you know, have some dignity and hold your head up and say, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll get him next time. So I, I think the way Daniel handles that is fine. Some of us are making fun of him for being on an epic losing streak, but I'm sure at the end of the day, it's not really going to, you know, hurt his feelings too much. Like he'll be fine. He's fine. He's he's fine, Dara. We can continue uh, until the losing streak ends. He's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's. I mean, yeah. I mean, to give him credit, he 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 does handle these things well. Uh, at on, at least after they happen, and um, you know, he's still an incredibly successful. Well, you know, th- then again, I'm sure there was lots of like desk pounding and, and cursing and air kicking and and sausage holding but but once that dust clears you know <laughs> yeah hell, head up high stiff up your lip i forgot about the sausage holding <laughs> yeah yeah well i guess we did we, did, we didn't have to see the immediate aftermatch on, on math on twitch we we did make the point that when all those twitch blow-ups were happening that it just wasn't a good format for him because he obviously needs that period to clear out his head before he can go out and, and be magnanimous. And uh, that's not possible on Twitch when the camera is right on you after it happens. 
when he played Doug, uh, there both players had 360 cameras in their playing space just to, you know, make sure there's no funny business going on with, you know, extra uh, software or anything like that. So somewhere the footage exists of every Daniel session against Doug. I haven't asked Doug. I we should. I would love to see uh, to be a fly on the wall for some of those sessions. Yeah, what well, there could be some amazing outtakes there for sure. Uh, moving on, Phil's next opponent on High Stakes Duel will be Fox Sports presenter Nick Wright. I don't think anyone saw this one coming. Uh, with Helmet teasing the possibility of a 100k match versus either Duan or Ivy, if he were to win that. Again, this comes from the Gamble Online piece by Paul. He's asked Phil the question. Which of your boys, I'm calling them your boys now, Thomas, which of your boys wants it more against Helmet than round two? Sorry, which boys are we talking about? Nick Wright? No, no, no. Dwan or Ivy? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I've heard that uh, Dwan might uh, get in the mix there. So, uh, you know, I, I'm sure both of them uh, would, would be up would be up for it. You know, high stakes, heads up, no limit, hold them. Those are things both of those guys love. They'll just want a big heads up tournament. So who wants it more? Hard to say. Probably pretty close. Fair enough. Well, moving on. I don't have a good segue this time, Dara. Just going to do a moving on. Moving on on is your your go-to. Yeah, to fall back on that one. There was a wild story which broke yesterday. I I actually, I don't think I have a question at the end of this, but I just have to read this story because it's fucking mental. Uh, The French businessman and high-stakes poker player Arnaud Mimran has been sentenced to 13 years for kidnapping. That's right. Mimran, who poker players might remember as the guy, he came 13th in an EPT in Monte Carlo back in 2006, but more famously, he was the guy who paid a 50K deposit to play the one drop and then didn't show up. It was a non-refundable deposit. Um, But yeah, he's been sentenced to 13 years in a French prison for masterminding the 2016 kidnapping of the Swiss financier Yami Rodrigue. I I have to read a couple of these details. It is wild. According to reporting from Casino.org, Rodrigue was bundled into a car by a gang led by a man named Sabir Titu and forced to buy millions of shares in a shell company called Cassidy Ventures Inc., which was controlled by Mimran. When Goldman Sachs called Rodrigue, back to say they would not take the trade because it was, quote, bizarre. His kidnappers forced him to buy the shares to a smaller broker the following day. The day after that, T2 was shot dead on his own doorstep. Suddenly now lacking a leader, the kidnappers scheme and it all kind of fell apart and they let Roderick go. They told him he was lucky because he had been earmarked to be killed at the end of it anyway. Roderick had been held for six days and was forced to buy 2.6 million in shares, although his kidnappers had ultimately wanted to get more out of him. It turns out now that Mimran, who is already halfway through an eight-year prison sentence for a $1.6 billion VAT fraud scheme, is believed to have been behind all of this. So, not like maybe not a poker story, but a poker player of someone we kind of tangentially are aware of in the, in the community. It's a fucking movie. Yeah, well, I mean, we've spoken before. I mean, these are not really poker stories. We all, we all know that some dodgy people play poker. Um, and, and, they're, and they're not poker players. Um, you know, you have to have money to play poker, and sometimes that money doesn't come from exactly legitimate sources. Um, you got to assume. I mean, now I will say the French stories are usually a lot more entertaining than the. You got to say you got to assume now that the one drop buy-in was probably going to be money laundering now as well. Allegedly, I'm I'm, I'm speculating if he had managed to pony up the other nine fifty. 
Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of hanging out with the French one year in Vegas, and it is very marked when you know when you hear them talking about all the stories that go on in French poker. There is some very very colourful stuff that never really makes it out of the French poker communities. Um, there are certainly some interesting characters hanging around the fringe of French poker. Yeah, there sure is. Um, well, look, the win 10K is in full swing right now. At the time of recording, I think there's about 60 or so players heading into day four. Amongst them are Maria Ho, Ralph Perry. There's a blast in the past. Cliff Josephy, Alex Foxen, Harrison Gimble, Toby Lewis, Tom Marchese and Ari Engel, the winner, will walk away with two million. This event is very much the main event of the summer in Vegas. That's obviously because the WSOP has been moved to the autumn with the main event in November. Dara, you wrote a blog this week giving some WSOP recommendations. Can you give us maybe your top two or three tips? Yeah, and a lot of people have been asking me recently because they're, you know, um, people who always had it on their bucket list to go to the WSOP, but never got around to it. And now the pandemic has sort of uh, concentrated minds and made people realize they just can't take it for granted that they'll always be able to do it. So a lot of people are actually planning to go to the WSOP travel restrictions, allowing for the first time this this um, this autumn from, from this part of the world. So people are asking for specific tips. Um, Usually they're they're focused on, you know, how much it's going to cost and what's the best place to stay and, 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 and all that stuff. And I mean, I'll, for that stuff, I would say just go and read the blog. I talk about how it's a very personal decision, and I've actually tried all of the alternatives. You know, living near the living near or even in the Rio, living in a house on the outskirts, living in a condo on the Strip, living in a better hotel—all those things—and they all have pluses and minuses, and it's very much personal what you want. The one thing I always tell people there's there's two things I um I guess I'll I'll, I'll focus on. The first one is just it's important to mentally prepare for the fact that it might not go exactly the way you imagined. Um, it's kind of like the live equivalent of a Sunday. You know, every online player knows we start every Sunday feeling wonderfully chipper and this is going to be the, we're going to win a, at least one major, maybe more. And then we <laughs> end it at 4am in the morning crying in or at, at our computers, very, very disappointed at, at, at how it turned out. The WSAP is kind of like that stretched over four, six, eight weeks, however long you're there for. Um, you play roughly the same amount of tournaments. They're all high runner fields. The variance is massive. It's the one place where you can happily bust five or six live tournaments in a day. And, you know, live tournaments feel different from online tournaments in the sense that you're more emotionally invested. So you can actually feel beaten up very, very quickly. Um, you know, even within a few days, you know, you might have busted 20 tournaments and now you're starting to, you know, you're stuck a long way from home, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just sort of mentally prepare for that. If you're there for longer than a week, Give your, definitely give yourself a day off every week to sort of just do a do a mental reset. I think that's quite important. Um, the second thing is more mundane is taxation matters. Um, if you're coming from Ireland or the UK, you don't have to pay tax um, on any American winnings, but you do need a an ITIN number, I think it's called, to prevent them, the casinos from withholding it. Now, the WSAP are very good on this, actually. When an Irish or English person cashes for the first time, they file all the necessary paperwork and they get your number for you and then they keep it on file thereafter so you don't have to do anything else. But other casinos are not as forthcoming. Um, I had an Irish guy a few years ago come to me say he just won a major amount in one of the other casinos. I think it was the Venetian. And they just said, no, we're keeping 40%. Uh, you, don't you, don't you don't have the number. So he he basically lost 40%. Now, I, I don't know whether he ever got it back. There is a obviously a reclaim mechanism, but you have to go to tax lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. So it might not even be worth your while. So if you are playing in other casinos, just bear that in mind. You may end up having to sort all that stuff out yourself. Um, and you definitely don't want to be paying 40% uh, of your 
of your ill-gotten gains. The other thing I would, the final thing point I would say on that is that the fact that Irish and UK players are exempt from taxation does allow you a, a additional leverage sometimes in deals. Um, there was a famous deal a few years ago where uh, an Irish player who was at very, very distant five of five, I think he had about four big blinds when the average was 40, managed to get first place prize money um, because it, it locked up a deal which kept all the Americans under the 10K thresholds on which they had to pay tax. Um, and I've heard other similar stories with, uh, involving British players as well. The Americans have a very strong incentive to stay under 10K or, or, or whatever the current threshold is. It, it might have been increased since. And that will actually give you additional leverage sometimes uh, in deal making. Do they chop up that first place money after it's over? Is that how that works? <laughs> yeah, that, that may or may not happen behind the scenes. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, that's that's definitely a possibility. Yeah, nice exploit, though. I like it. I like it. Thomas, you must know a lot about Vegas. Have you any tips? For the WSOP, I have no fucking tips. I'm sorry. I cannot help you. If you are out here playing the WSOP in September, September, right? You're on your own. I've actually I've never played in the WSOP. Still a bucket list item for me. Well, Dara neglected to point out that like he's tried all the, the ways to live, condo, fancy hotel, you know, a, a off the strip next door to the, the Rio. But living with me surely is the nuts, Dara. If, if, if you have an opportunity to, to, to stay with me in Vegas, that must be the ultimate tip. Yeah, it was um, it was very memorable. Yeah. It was um, so memorable. You did it another time. So, oh well, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you're. I mean, I, I think I'm on record as saying that you're like when I met you, I didn't didn't particularly like. No, you. no, there's no need. We don't need to go back into these stories now. Okay, didn't, let's let's. You know, I thought you were pretty. Horrible, segues, really, but you were always you were, you were always entertaining. So uh, your your main function has always been just to make my surroundings more entertaining. <laughs> and I don't, I don't remember um, whether I've told this on this show. It must have come up on some show at some point. But the very first time I showed up in Vegas. I was all chipper, like Dara described, uh, beginning of a Sunday. <laughs> and uh, and Dara just walked me to all the uh, famous landmarks, as he referred to them, uh, which were all the places where Irish people cried after doing their bollocks in big events. And he said, well, look, there, there's there's where Nick Newport was in the fetal position after he busted the main. There's where, there's where so-and-so else. I won't even say the other name. Sorry, Nick. Shouldn't even mention your name, Nick. Apologies. Uh, but yeah, just all the, all the different Irish people who did their you know, <laughs> proverbials. Yeah, well, I did say that it is important to prepare yourself for that. I mean, I always say that you will never see such a contrast as the start of the series when everybody's bouncing around the Rio, really, really happy, thrilled to see all their friends, and this is going to be you're going to win a bracelet, and then the the the, the dead zombie shuffle towards the end of the series when they're literally just waiting for their plane to, to be able to go home. Well. At this stage of proceedings, are we usually uh, turn back to you for a uh, strategy nugget? Would you have a, a little uh, strategy tidbit for our audience? Yeah, well, before I get onto that, actually, I, one thing um, I forgot to, to mention, and I noticed I have 40 notifications on my phone reminding me to do it. I believe you had a deep run in the Supernova, David, this week. Um, was, would you like to talk about that? Literally at the beginning, Dara, the, the moment was at the beginning. You skipped over and I thought, oh, that's, that's small, the love gone. No but, uh, no, but do tell us about the Supernova. How did that go for you? I came third in the Supernova. The Supernova is Unibet's flagship uh, event on a Sunday. It's 100 quid buy-in, 20k guarantee. It's overlaid all of the last three weeks. It'll probably overlay again next week and the week after and the week after. So jump in, guys. Um, and there was loads of dead money. So I just I got to take some of it. It was nice to get a... This was, your, was this your second deep run in recent times? 
Do you know what? I, now, I, I didn't ask you to tee up a brag, but if you're going to ask me the straight question, this is actually the ninth time I've cashed the Supernova in the last 12, and I've made four final tables. That is Helmet-esque. It's Helmet-esque. Yeah, Unfortunately, my but only in one tournament, nothing else. My There's recent record is Negreanu-esque, so yeah, we're at, we're, at, we're at different ends of the scale on that. Okay, anyway, to, to come to the, the to the strategy piece. So probably, I mean, definitely the most, if you think about the common uh, situations in poker, you know, people look at like all sorts of fancy situations like river check raises, et cetera. But the, the most common situation is one player raises and the blind defend, one, the big blind defends. And what's the most common type of flop? The ASI flop. Um, um, there are more ASI flops than any other flop. So how do you play ASI flops? Um, well, that's a question I get asked a lot. Like, how, what do I do on an ASI flop? And the answer is, it's actually quite different. There, you, you have to distinguish between different ASI flops. You know, ace, middle card, low card is different from ace, low card, low card. In fact, the ace, low card, low card flops are... are really stand out as a class on their own because on an ace low card low card usually the big blind will have straights they'll have two pairs and they'll have bot the, the two bottom sets and the and the the opener if particularly if they've come from early position um actually doesn't have those hands so therefore that's a flop you actually the imposition player actually has to be much more careful on even though in general ace high flops do favor the opener and you see when you work with solvers that the solvers all tend to size down and to see bet less frequently on those flops. Typically, one third is the preferred size compared to two thirds on other um, ASI boards. That's a great tip. Thomas, I'm interested to know of all the years, over all the years and all the videos you do, how much do you absorb from Doug when you're making those videos? Did you think it made you a better poker player or is it kind of you're disconnected because you're ear is to what's working as a presentation you would think so because i've listened to probably hundreds of hours of doug and also a bunch of upswing instructors talking about poker um doing some edits on those videos as well uh, i i talked to doug about this once and doug assumed that i must have absorbed quite a bit just through osmosis and i must be like a half decent player uh but not really um no, I, I would say it's kind of just in one year, out the other. I don't know, man. I, I've always been a big fan of poker. I never played it super seriously, and I was always a cash game player primarily. Uh, so it's been a couple of years since I've really even gone out onto the live felt and played some cash games. Maybe I can do that now. Well, before we let you go, I am interested to know what more you have in store. Obviously, your role at Poker King Media has already borne significant fruit in these interviews and in the collaboration with WPT. Is there anything in the pipeline you can tell us about, or is it all top secret? Um, I don't know if I can go into specifics, but what, what I can tell you is that uh, I do intend to put on some more events like the one that you just saw in, you know, cool locations with like, you know, high stakes players and, and some other types of um, internet personalities that you just saw. Uh, I'm working on a couple of documentaries which I hope I can talk about in the near future. Um, and I, honestly, man, I just want to make cool shit. That's, that's really the, the motto is as a fan, I've watched all the, I've watched, you know, high stakes poker and poker after dark and poker stars, big game and the WSOP on ESPN. And I've always wanted to be able to go in there and, and make productions in that vein. And I'm going to use this opportunity to make things that I feel like people like me would love to see. And 
It's really all I can do. Thank you for that unbelievable amount of no specifics and uh, no. I, I, okay, okay, okay. Look, I'm going to do some cash games or we're going to do probably some more heads up stuff. We're going to do some documentaries. Uh, who's yeah, going to be one? Who, name one person who's going to feature in one of these documentaries. I'm sure Tom and Phil. Oh, in the documentaries? Can't. No can do. Can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So uh, it's possible that every possible variant of poker might be in there and um, every single person in the poker industry, nobody has been ruled in or ruled out. But it gives it gives hope because because like my next, my follow-up bit was going to be, if you're going to Cabo again, do, do you need like two Irish guys? You know, we, we would, we'll get sunburned, no problem. We'll take the flight if, if invited, of course. Uh, you know, the we're all full for the next Cabo trip, but you guys uh, can definitely, you can be on the waiting list as alternates for sure. <laughs> You might get to Rosvedov, David. <laughs> yeah, wait, yep. wait, wait till Poker King Media start doing stuff in Europe. He'll come crawling back. <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to hold some big uh, heads-up tournaments in Siberia. <laughs> so you guys can go for that one. On that note, Daryl Kearney, thank you for your contributions as always. Thank you, David. And to our guest, Thomas Keeling, thank you for everything. Thank you.